Take your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 13 tonight. I'll have you stand there in a few moments. The title of the message tonight is Don't Be a Troublemaker. It's just real simple application, isn't it? Just don't be one of those things. And so we're going to look. What we're going to do is we're going to kind of cross uh, into chapter 14 because we see this theme stated more than one time. But let's begin our reading. Oh, let's go ahead and back up to verse 44 of chapter 13. And the Bible says, In the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the Word of God. Of course, to hearing Paul now preaching for the second time in a week. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, and the Bible says the Jews were filled with envy. And so up to this point, they didn't mind Paul preaching, but, but now they have a concern. And, and spake against those things which are spoken by Paul. So now they're an antagonist, contradicting and blaspheming. And then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing you put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. In other words, if you're going to cause trouble and you don't want to hear this and you're rejecting it, then we're going to move on. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And the Bible says the word of the Lord was published throughout the region. And this phrase captured my attention, but the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women. Now, do you have a visual of what stirred up looks like? Anybody ever see somebody else stir something up? Uh, okay, we all know what that's like, right? So this is what's happening. The Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against, uh, persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of the coast. I don't think that would have happened minus the stirring up. Only a few people made a problem for Paul and Barnabas and also forfeited opportunity for the entire rest of the city. Just a few people have that power. But verse 51, but they shook off the dust of their feet against them and came on to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. Now, chapter 14, verse 1. And it came to pass that Iconium, they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews, and so spake a great multitude, both of the Jews and also of the Greeks, and believed. And that's a blessing. And the conjunction again. But the unbelieving Jews, that next phrase is there again, isn't it? Stirred up. The Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren. Now, this is fascinating to me. They changed the opinions of others by stirring them up. Isn't that amazing the power that we have? So, they didn't like what was happening. Everybody else was sort of benign, but now you're unhappy because I'm unhappy because I stirred you up. Have you ever seen or witnessed that dynamic before? Okay, yes. so I want you to see the dynamic that we're talking about. Long time, therefore, both they speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave testimony to the word of grace, and granted signs and wonders to be done by the hands. But the multitude of the city was divided. And it was divided by a few, not by half. And part held with the Jews, and part with the apostles, again, because of the stirring up. And when there was an assault made, both the Gentiles and also the Jews with their rulers, to use them despitefully and to stone them. And <clears throat> they were aware of it. And fled to Lystra and Derby, the city of Lyconia, and to the regions that lieth right about. And there they preached the gospel. And then just a little bit further down the chapter, other people uh, persuaded, and that's the word that's used in the text, persuaded people to be stirred up. 
And Paul was actually stoned by troublemakers. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for, Lord, this text. Lord, so many lessons packed within, Lord, these, these histories. And Lord, I, I pray tonight that, Lord, as we look into this, that, Lord, you'd guard our hearts and our minds. And, Lord, you'd help us never, ever to be involved in, Lord, thwarting what you're trying to do, in, in, Lord, in the church, in this world, in someone else's heart. May we never be an antagonist. But, Lord, may we ever uh, strive to be someone who edifies and helps and encourages. So, Lord, we ask for your help with this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. As we consider the early ministry of the Apostle Paul, Barnabas, and initially John Mark, but he's now um, decided not to be a part for reasons we do not know. So, a little internal strife. Um, there is a reoccurring theme, and this is just the very first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. He's got two more to go. A reoccurring theme within the book of Acts, and, and really throughout the entirety of the New Testament, we see in the life of Christ, is that the taking of the gospel to the world wouldn't and won't be and is never easy. Uh, you know, you don't take the gospel down a paved highway, metaphorically in life. Rather, it goes down windy bumpy, treacherous roads with thieves and robbers and assailants, you know, throughout. And, and we see this theme over and over that it is an effort, and often a Herculean effort, to take the gospel. And then when it is taken, it often extracts a great cost from those who would deliver it. Often missed in the casual reading of the book of Acts is the arduous journey that the Apostle Paul traveled. You know, we, we hear about some of the, the, the stonings, the shipwrecks, and I'll read a little bit about that in a moment. But what's lost on us is the sheer difficulty of the travel. You know, you and I live in the age of paved highways. We have cars, we have planes, we have trains, we have buses. They had ships and feet. And, and that's how Paul traveled tens of thousands of miles, if you add it all up. If you apply the math, to the footwork of the Apostle Paul, the man walked thousands and thousands of miles. Just in this last week, we read about he, how he went from um, Pamphos, which is Cyprus, sailed across this, this strait, you know, into Galatia. But what you don't see there is until you look at the geography, he walked up a mountain. Like he's journeying in difficult terrain. And then what's often not said as well is that in the ancient world, as is, you know, kind of chronicled maybe in the story of the Good Samaritan, that the journey was fraught with difficulty. There were thieves and robbers and all this. And we, we read this and we think, well, Paul went from here to here. We see the map and we draw the lines and we kind of have this intellectual understanding of what he traveled. What's missed there is that he did something that most of us physically could not even do in, in the journey that he did. And all of that to simply give some people the gospel. You know, we often are not thinking about the Herculean individual grace we required effort for him to simply give someone this truth. By the time Paul got to this place to talk to these people, he had to be somewhat emaciated. He had to be exhausted. You, know, you and I, we need a, we need a rest day. You know, we, we would need time to recover from our journey. But the Apostle Paul goes from his journey and steps into the, the tabernacle, you know, into the, the synagogue there, and he starts preaching. And, and such was the effort of the Apostle Paul. His trips were physically daunting 
and they were filled with danger. In the book of 2 Corinthians, of course, this is the part that we, we like to, when I say like, we often punctuate because, you know, it, it, it's more dramatic. But the Apostle Paul would say this in verse 23 of that chapter. And he says, are they ministers of Christ? I am more in labors, more abundant in stripes above measure. So beyond the, the thousands of miles I've walked and, and beyond the sea sickness that I endured all the time, I was also beaten, by the way. He said, I received 40 stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils by the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and in painfulness. <laughs> Think arthritis. You know, beyond all this, just humanity in this man's body. In weariness and painfulness and watchings often, in hunger and thirst and fastings often, in cold and nakedness. And beside those things that are without, that which can that come upon me daily, the care of the churches, the, the intellectual, the emotional, physical, uh, spiritual toll of just the stress that so many new Christians is pressing upon me. Many of the things that Paul mentions in that text are not chronicled actually in the book of Acts. So we read all the things we read in Acts and then these were additional journeys that are mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And you add all of that then to what's said in the next chapter, chapter 12, and he has some kind of thorn of the flesh that also plagued him physically, that he besought the Lord three times for. And in all this, the God says, my grace is sufficient. I just, I just want to force to appreciate for the moment that sometimes behind the simple effort to do something like a Wednesday night service, there's a lot of miles behind it. There, there's a lot of effort. There, there are people who've you know, made a service like tonight that we absolutely take for granted and we're just here, but there's there's lots of sacrifice, there's lots of miles, there's lots of money, there's lots of payment, there's a lot of sweat, button tears. There's people who went through a lot of things just so we could do this. There are people who simply heard Paul preach. He just preached and they had no idea the enormity of the cost behind it. And of course, the point I'm working towards is that when you become a troublemaker in the midst of that, you are so incredibly ignorant and foolish and you have no idea of the line you're messing with back here. You have no idea. The early story of Paul's life is that he was threatened. So if we look back, it's in our study. So we, we, we forfeit all knowledge I have. We just go back a couple chapters. So Paul saved on the Damascus Road and immediately he begins to preach and immediately he begins to suffer these things. So in Damascus, his life was threatened. He runs from there to Jerusalem and there his life was threatened. I mean, this is this guy's life. And, you know, he sees opposition in Galatia from Elymas and then others. And then we read, and we'll read this coming Sunday, I think, about his stoning, you know, in Iconium. And he very well could have been a supernatural event. He, he could have died and been, you know, uh, resuscitated. It's, it's, we don't know, but it's a big event. And so, you know, I'm trying to make a, a segue here. So we need to understand while Paul's experiences were extraordinary, in kind and type, they shouldn't necessarily be unique and isolated. We need to be aware 
and prepared and actually, I, I, and I think Daniel did a masterful job this Sunday night, realized that living the Christian life and doing more than that, delivering the gospel to someone else will not be easy. You know, we often want the Christian life to come on the cheap. And, and, and once it gets hard, many people opt out and we, we go a different direction. But we, we learn from the lives of the disciples, the apostles, and of course throughout the book of Acts, that getting the gospel to the people is work. Doing anything for God requires effort and energy in, in His grace. And, and, and we need to be prepared mentally to, be, to suffer something for the cause of Christ as well in our own life. It would be a foolish thought and a false kind of Christianity that expects no trials or difficulties. For you to think you're never going to be challenged or hurt or disappointed or stabbed in the back or have to run uphill, if you're one of the kind of Christianity, a Christianity that avoids all that, you've come to the wrong faith. Amen. Because Christ never promised that. Matter of fact, he said the opposite. It's sort of like putting your hand to a plow. And you're probably tempted to let go of it a lot of times, but don't. There's going to be cost in building the tower. And if you don't count the cost, you probably ought not start. There's a dozen metaphors to, to this. The life of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, the way that so many of the Old Testament uh, uh, you know, prophets face trial. And in the New Testament, it's just in our current world, I just don't know we're often prepared to pay the price. So when a price comes, then often we, you know, we struggle. I just want us to understand that. That's not even the point of my sermon tonight. But it sort of is in a way. You know, if we never experience persecution, that ought to probably give all of us reason to pause for a moment. Because my Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall, shall suffer persecution. And, and let me just kind of even ease off that a little bit. Anyone who, who, who will live for Christ is going to have to pay a price. To be faithful in a church is going to require discipline. To, to, to be involved when it's difficult is going to require some, some you know, stick-to-itiveness. There's going to be a lot of times just in coming to church together, you know, a, a group of sinners getting along for decades is a challenge. You know? And if you're just got to live in a pristine environment, it's not going to work. We may never walk in Paul's shoes, but we do share the man's faith. Right? And there should be enough similarities between my faith and Paul's faith that we may share some of his common experiences as well. Maybe not as dramatic. I don't do ships for the most part. But I've never been beaten. But I, I can say that serving Christ for the last several decades has been a challenge sometimes. Not on the same you know, page as this man. But I can say it's not always been easy. And we should be able to identify with that in some measure. I think there is also value in making sure, okay, and here's the point of my message. This is where I, you know, if you haven't paid attention, it would be a good time to start. Is understanding the enormity of the effort to get us where we are at today in our Christianity. Or maybe just a person to the place of faith. Or if you can begin to comprehend the amount of effort that got Eastland Baptist Church to this place in time in history, I might suggest to you it'd be entirely unwise to be a troublemaker. That's the connection. 
And, and, and by the way, I have no agenda. This is just the text I saw. So we don't have that here. So I'm preaching the choir. I, I know I get really passionate. I don't mean to. And plus I'm pale skin, so I seem red when I shouldn't be. So I want you to get that. You don't know the story of what it took to get me saved. You don't know the struggles I've had as a pastor here. And I'm just using myself as an example. You don't know what's even happened in my week. You don't know what precipice I could be on and all the effort behind it. And for you to come thoughtlessly and be unkind or meddle or be a troublemaker, I wouldn't want to be responsible for that. I wouldn't want to mess with that. I wouldn't want to stand God and say, you know, it never occurred to me that a lot of people over a lot of decades put a lot of work into that church and I just came there and messed it all up. Like, I don't want that. On, I wouldn't want that on, on me. I think there's a value in understanding what it takes to get people to a place of serving Christ and getting things done so that we are careful not to oppose what Christ is doing in somebody else's life. So we're not opposing what the Lord is trying to do here in Eastland Baptist Church. Whatever your concerns are aside, there is a greater work here that God is accomplishing in this place. And it would be good if most of us could bow to it. Amen. To have a spirit of opposition like Elymas. To have a spirit of opposition like the Jews did repeatedly. To understand that behind all that is Christ on the cross and the efforts of the Apostle Paul. And then for me to say, well, you know, that hurt my feelings and you're going to take my place. So I'm going to thwart all of that by being a troublemaker. You know, and God help us. We, we ought to be careful about ever stirring up strife or ever persuading anyone to think ill of anyone else. And, and that's what's literally said here, that there were people who persuaded others to have a negative spirit. They persuaded them to be angry. They persuaded them to see a fault that maybe was there. But they took the ember that would have died out and they fanned it. So you can see the flame a little bigger. It's not that there's not problems in a church. There's always problems in a church. But that's where like, you know, love covers a multitude of sins and grace should cover a whole lot of stuff in the world. But if you're always finding every ember that's wrong and you're always fanning it, I wouldn't want to be that guy. Amen. And in the text, um, pretty much universally, it's unbelievers who stir up strife. And we see this repeatedly. And it's unbelievers who get Paul stoned. It's unbelievers that cause him to have to leave a work of God. Because the Bible says many people were saved here and many people were saved here. But then the troublemakers come and they thwart it all. And they did this over and over and over. And can you imagine the accountability before God one day to say, hey, for the Lord, I was working in Iconium. Man, people were getting saved. And you got, you, you were offended and you, you stirred up all these people and now that work of God had to move to someplace else and that was stopped prematurely. Sadly, it's not always the unbelievers who act this way. Sometimes it's the followers of Christ as well. 
In Acts chapter 13, verse 40, 41, last week we looked at this words of warning. Verse 40, it said, Beware therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of the prophets. And verse 41 is a quote from Haggai, I'm sorry, Habakkuk 1 5. Behold, you despise and wonder and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work you shall no wise believe that a man declared to you. The context here was that the, the Jews in Judea were living in disregard to the law and to the Lord. Habakkuk's like, Lord, where are you? Like all this immorality, all, all, all this lack of honoring you, like, Lord, where are you? And he says, um, hold on, Habakkuk. There's coming a day when a work's going to be done that no one's going to believe that this is going to happen. And he goes, I'll say, I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans and it's going to be like, you know, horde of grasshoppers coming. Or do you want judgment? It is coming, buddy. And it's, it's going to be a wonder and an amazement. So this warning is sort of like this. The, the application Paul's making is that after rejection comes judgment. But he goes on to make the application more that after trouble comes judgment too. In other words, anytime anyone opposes God in his work or what God is doing, that's not a safe place to be. It's not a safe place to be. And someplace we never want to be. In other words, I say this way. Those who fight against God and what he is doing will face judgment. Those who fight what God is doing and try to see someone saved, what God is doing here in Eastland Baptist Church, what God may be trying to do in your life, the way God's trying to get you through the week, what God's been working for a long time to see accomplished in somebody else's life, those who fight against what God is doing are going to face a, a kind of judgment or accountability. Paul and Luke, the writer of Acts, make the application by telling the Jews who have just heard the gospel, who ignored the message, who are now fighting against it, that they're going to be fighting against God, and that's, you, don't, you don't want to do that. But nevertheless, in both chapters 13 and 14, we see the Jews and some Gentiles doing exactly that, fighting against God by fighting against His men, fighting against Paul and Barnabas. But in 1350, regardless of Paul's warning in verses 40 and 41 in chapter 13, despite this enormity of cost that it took to bring the gospel to these people, literally across the sea, Despite the, the act of love, despite all the grace, despite here are guys giving their life to this. Verse 50. <laughs> With all that enormity behind it. But the Jews started up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul. Despite the enormity of the effort for silly and selfish reasons that are pretty petty. They decided to make life hard for those guys. To the point it comes stoning them. Troublemakers. Stirred means to agitate. We get that, right? Put a, have a cup of tea or coffee and put sugar in it and you stir it. You're stirring up. What would settle to the bottom is stirred up and around. It's, it's inflamed. An ember. You know, you have a fireplace and there's a little bit of ember down there and you start, you stir it, you, you fan it. And all of a sudden, what would have died doesn't die, it, it grows. That's the idea. There's a lot of things in life that would probably die appropriately that we negatively breathe life into. Gossip, 
Did you know? That's not right. That's not fair. You guys follow me? There's a lot of little embers, and they're that. They, they, they may even be negative and bad or wrong or whatever else, but the grace may be sufficient to cover them until you stir them up in somebody else's heart. Has a fire ever got out of control in your life? Oh, do I have stories about fires getting out of control? More than one time, I meant to burn a small section of my yard, and all of a sudden, I lost control. And my kids remember when we were little, we were all chasing the fire with coats and blankets and towels and trying to put these things out. And, you know, in those moments your hearts are pounding like, you know, I'm going to go to jail. I have seen this in human community, you know, in our communities and churches and schools and places. Things that just would have kind of burned out. It had been okay. We incite. And all of a sudden now it's big. As a matter of fact, we didn't intend all of that even. In chapter 14, verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles. Evidently, the Gentiles may have been ambivalent, neutral. They may have even been receptive. Hey, but did you know that Paul's a heretic? Do you know all these problems about the Apostle Paul? I mean, they, they point out things that these people may have never noticed or cared about. They stirred them up took them from some level of neutrality to negativity. And then look at me in verse 19 of chapter 14. And again, Paul's now preaching, I call him a new city in verse 19. And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium. Now this phrase, and persuaded the people. And, of course, the persuasion leads to stoning. We've got to do something about this guy. Persuading. To ch literally, the power to change someone's opinion from neutrality to let's throw rocks at this guy. Have you? Okay. I have seen this over and over. I've seen it in school boards. I, I, I have seen it at, at job sites. I have seen this in... I've seen this in my, my neighborhood's HOA. True? No one really cares until someone cares a lot, and then everyone cares a lot. And I've not ever seen it here. Praise the Lord. But I have seen it in other churches. And God forbid that we ever see it here. Or that anyone here is the agency of it. As I read these verses, I see that people have an incredible power to harm, to incite, and to persuade. That is an incredible power that probably comes from, the from our tongue and our effort and energy. And whether they meant to do this or not, they can fight against God. Because if you hurt God's work, you're fighting against God. If you hurt the people in God's work, then you're fighting against God. And so, this idea of being a troublemaker here just jumps out at me. Don't be a troublemaker. Don't be cantankerous. Don't be hard to please. Don't be hard to get along with. That is an incredible evil. We, we often assign, you know, these things as lesser. You know, we gasp at immorality when we talk bad about the Sunday school teacher. Inciting a flame that didn't have to be there. 
And here's the deal. The immorality may just affect that person. But your backbiting gossip may affect the whole class. And there's a greater accountability there for you, I would suggest, than the other. I think that God holds us accountable for that. Because the way we act and influence others affects other people. Matthew 18, 6 says, but whosoever shall offend one of these little ones. And we think about children, but this is one of God's children. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believeth in me. Now I'm talking about someone who's not saved. Whoever offends someone who is, who is a believer. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged around his neck in the depth of the sea. So young people, before we go out and talk bad about other people, and before we share gossip on Facebook or whatever the forms that people use today, before we just go in there and, you know, kind of fan the flames, there's something about a millstick, still sewn, that should be hanging around your neck if that person's hurt because of things that you said. And it's a big deal. It's a big deal. And ought not be part of the fabric of Eastland Baptist Church or your life in any area of life. God has an incredibly poor opinion of people who cause division. Half the city here, half the city there. God's, on, God's not in on that. Take your Bible to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. I've got a few minutes. I'm going to make it. Sin is sin. All of it keeps us from God. But for reasons known to God, and I think because of the consequences, there are things that God points out to us. In Proverbs 6, 16, he says this. These six things doth the Lord hate, abhor. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked imaginations, feet that be swift and running to mischief, <laughs> a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. Why? I don't know all the reasons. I just know this. Behind whatever it is you're being a troublemaker with is a long history of effort on someone's part, maybe that person's part, just to get where they're at. Deserved or not, it goes all the way back to a cross. And for you to jump in there and think that you have the right to meddle with what God's doing in someone's heart, i just be really careful about that. Matter of fact, i just back way away from that if I were you. Sowing discord carries the idea of strife, of persuading men to have an opinion that they could have neutrality about to evil intention. We should never, ever, ever underestimate God's disdain for creating division in places like this or in your home or in that, anywhere that you would otherwise could have harmony. Speaking evil of others or doing anything at all to put another man at enmity with another man is a wrong. It's an evil. It's an abhorrence to God. It's an abomination. Not my words. Bible words. Abomination 
for you to foment ill intention between one person and another. And if gossip is not that, I don't know what gossip is. Because gossip only simply creates a poor perception of one person of another person. In other words, you're whoever, but if I start talking evil about you, or did you know, did you know, all of a sudden that person's perception drops. And that's just evil. Marriage that are not, God knows, and it's not your place to fan the flames. Our lives are about encouraging, edifying, building up. In every uh, venue of our life, we don't ever want to be Elemas, or like these Jews. And, you know, I, I might suggest, you know, there's ways we could, we could be that negative force. There's a, perhaps even just even benignly, we can live in such a way that we have no conviction. We don't live for the truth. We don't have love. And that we're not using our influence to encourage people towards God. And as a matter of fact, we may be living as Christians in such a way that we give people even reason to despise the truth we say that we believe. And maybe that's a way that we could, you know, begin meddling with the good that God's trying to do. When it comes to serving Christ, our testimony and our service matter. Being salt and light requires positivity, encouragement, and the avoidance of negative. I, I think in the Christian life, there's no place for ambiguity, indifference, and spiritual neutrality. And I think sometimes saying nothing is almost as evil as doing evil when we could have been an encouragement and a positive force in someone else's life. But I, I think there's something more specific, you know, we can drill down on here in reflection. If I go all the way back to Elemas, and, and here I guess where I, I think we can, this is sort of the heart of what I feel. There's just kind of this, this idea that, you know, don't oppose God. Why did Elemas fight against Paul and Barnabas? He wasn't convinced of a doctrinal difference. He, it wasn't because, you know, he believed so much in what he believed in. No, I, I, I get to be serving the king, and I don't want you to come in here and mess that up. I, I could summarize this way. Because what they were doing hurt your feelings. It's personal. It's personal. So because I'm personally hurt, personally offended, personally bothered, have personal angst, all of a sudden that rises up so monumentally that now I can be that negative person. Why did the Jews stir up strife? Well, because the people come to the synagogue and they pay their tithes and they do all these things to us. But Paul's coming here to teach them something different. And this, is, this hurts me. See, what are we most inclined to stir up and be a troublemaker? Well, when it's about me. You ignored me. I don't like that. I'm going to tell other people I don't like that. Do you know the preacher? He walked right by me and didn't say anything. He never, he, he never says hi to me. Okay. <laughs> How about you just get over that? If it matters to you, and I, I don't mean you to be personal, I don't feel this way, then you come say hi to me. Well, it really didn't matter in the first place. If I don't swerve, you swerve. 
if he doesn't swerve, then you swerve. And if it matters, you do something about it. In other words, this is where, this, this, this is where you know, teens can sometimes live. You know, they said this on Facebook, they did this, they did this, and all of a sudden all these little fires are popping up everywhere. Is any of it consequential? No. Have you ever remembered in five years? No. Is it a big deal? No. It's petty. It's personal. It's small. And while we don't have great big church problems and we don't have all this, I can tell you from the desk I sit at, it's pretty easy to be amazed at the little things that can build up in someone's heart over some little personal offense. And what they really need to do is stop being so immature and grow up. Get over it. If love can cover a multitude of sins and grace has any power at all, which I think it does, grow up. Handle some personal slights and offenses. You know, if someone slams you and does you real harm and, you know, it merits all that, I, I, I wanna, probably want to make sure you check that scripturally and address that, you know, scripturally in the right way. But to incite and persuade and to stir up trouble because your feelings are hurt or you've been personally offended or whatever else, I'm going to suggest to you that is insufficient reason for the fire because you may burn something down that took a lifetime for someone else to build. These men were simply personally threatened. Jews in every city, same story. Personal, you know, some kind of injury or loss. You know, how can we be tempted to stir up strife? In our heart, in our marriage, at work, at school, well, my cousin, something just doesn't sit right with me personally. Hurt, injustice, slight, negativity, offense, whatever. Then all of a sudden, who cares about peace? Who cares about all the effort? Who cares about love? Who cares about unity? Because, man, I'm, I'm unhappy and my feelings are hurt. Intending to or not, in defending ourselves and our opinions and our place, in our necessity to always be right, we allow strife to be born in our hearts and in the hearts of others. I often marvel at what people think Christianity is about. But a big part of being Christian is being able to deal with opposition and difficulty, slight, injustice, in marginalization, in whatever else bugs you with a good spirit and a good attitude, and I can handle it. We don't have time. First um, Corinthians chapter 6, I love it. I, I love the truth of it. Two believers are uh, going at it to the point of lawsuit, and Paul comes in and he doesn't say, okay, now let's figure this out. Who's right and who's wrong? He just says this, just eat it. Just eat it. That's my summary if I says it. Why not suffer wrong? Why not just eat the injustice for the sake of unity? You know, I'm not talking about pacifying evil when it needs to be dealt with. I'm not, I, we, we, things very seldom rise to the level that, of what you think is really that important. 
Grace could cover a lot more than we realize, is what I'm trying to suggest to you. He said, you know, if they didn't talk to you, it's okay. You know, they, 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 they said this behind your back, it's just, you know, if, if you wanna go dress it and fix it the right way, go fix it the right way, otherwise say nothing. If you can't go correct it and have a good spirit and do things the right way, then just let it go. And by the way, don't punish them because of it forever. If someone hurts you in the church, you know, either talk to them about it and get resolved or walk by them the way you would every other Sunday and love them all the same. Or, or, or you'll be ever starting fires. Here, let, let me put in phrases that make sense to me. Be bigger than your problems. Let Christ be bigger than your issues. Realize even if you're right and someone's wrong, handle the wrong the right way. Never ever broaden a fire unnecessarily. And unnecessarily is almost always. Maybe not always, but probably close to it. Don't incite, don't persuade, don't stir up at home, work, church, anywhere, something that can be covered by the grace of God. If the only response you know to do with others' wrongs is to find yourself at odds with them and to entice, stir up, then you are in sore need of Christian maturity and the grace of God. So maybe a probing question, before you talk to anyone else about someone else, ask yourself the question, am I lighting a fire? Am I, am I inciting? Am I stirring something up to make me feel better? Or am I actually trying to solve the problem or advance the cause of Christ? To put the two together. There's a whole lot of effort that goes into making things work. A whole lot. Making this work. Incredible effort. Don't mess with it. Been married 35 years. A whole lot of effort goes into making a good marriage. I don't want to mess it up over something small. I don't know if I want to mess it up for something big. It's a lot of work. Not worth messing up. Just, just be careful that we're not troublemakers. That we don't incite and inflame and persuade people to any hurt that they don't need to possess themselves. Let me ask you to stand.